This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Dreamily Paul. Mm. Paul, how are you doing on this spring morning? Yeah, a little a little dreamily for sure. Uh, yeah, kind of <laughs> waking up. Uh, we've been, I think you and I have compared a few pictures. It's been a snowy spring for us. So that always kind of adds that oh, weird, man. like surreal element where one day it's, you know, 85 degrees and the next day it's 35. But living in the west that's what happens but yeah <laughs> yeah no it's been going good how you doing well kind of the same stuff just a bunch of weather fluctuations it, it did get it was snowing and then it did get up into the low 80s mm-hmm. and now it's settled back into the you know 40s and 50s which mm. i'm like I, I just want a good spring everybody i don't need it to be snowing and then 85 degrees i need it to be in the 60s and 70s high for some time at least because i I love that temperature i love that time of year but we finally have some flowers popping out of the ground which is always a a really fun thing at this time yeah we do too i went on a little hike last weekend and it was really cool along the side of the trail there were all these little flowers starting to pop out and it's one of those like even though it happens every year, there's always something kind of magical about that moment when you first notice it. And it's like, oh, it really is that time. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely. Well, listeners, today we are going to be talking about idols. I-D-Y-L-S. Not, not the golden calf or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, not American and, Idol. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking looking forward to doing this. Um, did I spell that? I-D-Y-L-S? It's I-D-Y-L-L-S. I'm just uh, going fast here. (laughs) Um, uh, So I'm looking forward to doing that. But before we get there, I do have a few things. Um, First, when we told Open Letter Books who won the Open Letter giveaway, they came back and said, hey, why don't you, because we loved doing this so much, why don't you choose five other winners and we'll send them the forthcoming book they're most anticipating. I didn't go through and see what everyone's forthcoming book was. We'll we'll handle that on the back end. But let's uh, let's let's draw five winners, Paul. Let, let's just start this one out with a bang because I think yeah. this will be a lot of fun. I love so, it. That was so so nice of them. That's exciting. Yeah, and uh, so I did this all through the random number generator, and here we go. Our first winner, Kit Mosinski. Our second winner, Robert Summers. Our third winner, Abigail Everett. Our fourth winner, Nina Lehman. And our fifth and final winner for the Open Letter Giveaway this time around is Mike White. Congratulations, Kit, Robert, Abigail, Nina, and Mike. I'm excited for you to get these books that are coming out. <laughs> I know, I am too. Yeah, I'll be curious. I'll have to dig around and figure out which ones they're going to be getting. Um, but no matter what it is, as we said, Open Letter has so many great books coming out that I'm sure they're in for a treat. Yeah, for sure. I I, I, I should have done that. I should have gone back through the emails. Because what I do is I put a spreadsheet together with everyone's names as the emails come in, but mm-hmm. I don't put down what books they, they talked about in the, yeah. in the spreadsheet. Uh, but I am curious uh, which ones these are. I'll be looking, I'll tell you who they are. Just That's right. won't be able to, to spend the time this morning to, 
you know, go through the emails and look all these up and tell our listeners. But maybe we'll get some feedback <laughs> though once they receive their books and, and read Ooh, them. I maybe so. we'll get some. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, that would thank be great. you so much, Chad and Kaya. That was so nice of Open Letter to do that, and <laughs> you know, it's such a cool treat. We will be in touch so that you know you've won. Since you probably, you know, this is a bigger surprise than just winning uh, when you know a giveaway is coming. But yeah, <laughs> all right. And then the other thing that I wanted to bring up before we kind of got going is um, another Paul, Paul, Paul Fulker, uh, who I met about a decade ago now uh, when the Booker Prize website got rid of their forum, their discussion forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I created a, a discussion forum that this Paul, Paul Fulker, came over to to talk about book prizes and books and things like that in general. It didn't last too long in that format. It was just, it was kind of like Palimpsest, where it was just a, uh, you know, a my free forum kind of site. Uh, we eventually just moved to Goodreads, where there's mm-hmm. a lot of discussion capability, and that that site is is going quite strongly. Well, Paul typed into chat GPT uh, <laughs> something asking about the mooks and the gripes. <laughs> and here's what came back. Mooks and the gripes is a term coined by a blogger named Trevor Barrett in 2011 to describe a behavior observed in book discussion forums, particularly on Goodreads. The term refers to a type of argument where two or more people engage in a heated debate over a particular book, its merits or shortcomings, and they end up talking past each other and focusing more on attacking the other person's argument or character than actually discussing the book. (laughs) The mooks refers to the person who is well-read, analytical, and often looks for deeper meanings in literature, while the gripes is someone less who is less interested in literary analysis and more likely to criticize the book for its flaws and personal preferences. <laughs> the argument often turns into a competition between the two types of readers, with neither side willing to listen or acknowledge the other's perspective. This phenomenon has been observed in various online book communities, and it can lead to toxic and unproductive discussions that discourage people from participating. The term the mooks, mooks and the gripes, has become a shorthand for this type of argument, and some sh- some online book groups have adopted rules to discourage this type of behavior and promote <laughs> m- respectful and productive discussions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first off, that makes me sound way cooler than I am by, like, blogger Trevor Bear. In 2011, he coined this term to describe book discussions. And yeah. No, that, that, I mean, I had my blog start in 2008, and I just looked for a name that I thought was fun and maybe kind of had an idea of gripesy thing in it because mm-hmm. that rang with, uh, you know, being analytical or, or at least critical. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I like James Joyce. So that's, that's where, where, where it came from. Um, I certainly the have per- always tried to, you know, in, in the forums that I've been a part of and have, have uh, been the moderator for, I've, I've told people, hey, we're here to to be passionate about our books, but not attack each other and figure out a way. But yeah, I don't think I've ever ever really thought about it in this in this way before. I'm glad that's that so I funny. long ago chose the username Mooks, though. That that that's really self serving. <laughs> I know. I, like I said, I have been called the Gripes a few times, and if based on that, that is not good, not good at all. <laughs> no, the thing that's funny is I keep hearing people talk about you know how accurate like. AI and chat GPT, it's eerily accurate in some cases. And it's like, well, 
And that one, I'm happy to say, I don't think that they quite hit the mark. Um, Did, didn't quite hit the mark, but it's still kind of eerie. Like I know it has it, it, it. somehow connected. I mean, it's it is the Mooks and the Gripes is a real literary thing, mm. and yet it somehow connected me mm-hmm. and Goodreads and books all yep. to a discussion about it and to trying to figure out a good way to talk about books. It's like that, that is eerily um, on the on the right line, but yeah. in a funny way, it, you know, go doesn't, it, it's very confident about itself. It is. It? <laughs> and that's one thing that I've heard. It's, I think it's described. I don't know exactly if it's that, but the, the hallucination effect that the AI can have where if it doesn't know, like you said, it will just confidently start spouting out things that <laughs> if you didn't know any better, you'd be like, Oh, okay. So that's funny. I did the other day type into it, you know, write the first um, paragraph of Moby Dick as if you were a young girl from the American West. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it, it, it was like, my name is Hannah. And she's got... <laughs> it it was really funny. I didn't save it or, or, you know, screenshot it, but it was, I'm like, this is really silly and fun and weird. And I don't know what to think about it, but no, thanks I don't either. Other Paul for, uh, for sharing <laughs> that, 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 uh, that was the result of this one. So that's hilarious. <laughs> we'll keep that in mind as we discuss things today. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> we'll talk past each other and have make it very competitive. That's right. <laughs> All right, Paul, what have you been reading? Yeah. So I can't remember on the last episode if I mentioned, I think I might have said I had just started The Birthday Party by Laurent. Uh, is it Mauvignier? I believe is how you say it. Yeah. Translated by Daniel Levin Becker. Um, so yeah, I've been reading that over the last couple of weeks. And I will say it took me a while to read, but not because I wasn't enjoying it or man, this book is, is a page turner in every sense of the word, but it's done in a really interesting way. So (laughs) you've read it, I know, and and Mm -hmm. it's been making the rounds. Um, It's just, you know, I'm trying to think of like the best way to describe it without giving any spoilers, but basically it is about this man and his young daughter and his wife who live in this, you know, kind of remote Hamlet in France called three lone girls and it is his wife's birthday and so he is going about his day kind of planning for the party and at the same time we also get to kind of live inside of the brain of the daughter and of his wife and then eventually we move over to some other characters but it's got oh there, there's also a neighbor named christine who's an artist who plays a very prominent role um who lives right there in that little hamlet and and so it's just this very you know it starts out and you don't know quite what to think but it quickly takes on a very menacing tone there's someone in the neighborhood who is leaving these threatening notes and there's you know quickly this kind of storm clouds start to gather and you don't know exactly what's going to happen and then you start to figure out what's happening and it's Hmm. it's you know very propulsive uh all takes place in the course of one day um and i would just say that I think, you know, all the hype and excitement about it is, is very well justified. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was, you know, very different than what I was expecting going in, but it turns so out. So you finished it. Way. I did finish it. Yeah. So offline, I can ask you some questions. Okay. I will try. I have, I have some, some threads that I didn't ever feel I could understand how they tied together. And mm-hmm. that may have been the point and I'm mm-hmm. fine with that. Right. But I also just want to like I keep I have asked a few people like did I miss this or is this really what Mauvignier did? Mm-hmm. And so I'll I'll ask you about okay. that offline. But yeah, yeah I, I thought it was fantastic as well. It took yeah. me a long time to read it too because it's 
it's a page turner that fights you to turn That's the right. page. <laughs> it, no, it's true. And it's also, you know, I could have seen it being a slim, you know, uh, a 200 page, like mm-hmm. page turner that you just burn right through. But I mean, it's, it's a big book for considering it takes place in one day. And if you just described what it's about, yeah. you might think it wouldn't be, but it's almost 450 pages. And the one thing I will say is either I'm getting old or the font on this oh, particular yeah. book is tiny. I was it's like, tiny. Oh. The okay. the um the UK edition from Fitzcarraldo mm-hmm. is over six hundred pages. Oh, I want to say tiny. it might even be over six hundred and fifty pages. Yeah, the font is uh, tiny, and and that that was when I got it in my hands and I opened up and saw that first page. I was like, holy crap! I don't know if I can take this on right now. I know. But I started to read it. That's the thing. And before I knew it, I'd read you know quite a bit of it. And thought, well, Sucked I guess I, I guess I'm doing this now. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it was very similar. I got it from the library, and I was thinking it might just be one of those I could read quickly between a couple of other books and have kind of a similar experience <laughs> where I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to this, but I made that fateful decision to read the first page and fate, 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 off, decision. Off, I know where it was going to what it was going to do to you. Exactly. Yeah, I just pulled out my bifocals and got to work. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's 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 great because the. The book is is a is a thriller, mm-hmm. but I don't think if he had made it just a typical thriller, it would be any good. I mean, no. it doesn't doesn't have much to do with all of that. It's all the other things that are going on that make it really good. Added to the dread of the thriller atmosphere and such, and it it's it's a pretty unique book that I, I thought was really good. It really is, and just by the time you're done, you've you've been exposed to a variety of different characters some insiders some outsiders and it's just amazing it's one of those where again it takes all takes place in the course of a day but by the end you feel like you know a lot about every single one of those which is really amazing the way he kind of does that effortless Mm -hmm. or seemingly effortlessly so probably was effortless yeah i was gonna say he probably just jotted it (laughs) up first draft (laughs) no it's really good and then um i have also just started um one of those little beautiful gems we talk about from Archipelago. Um, and I, I think you've read this one too, Eastbound by Milos yeah. Karingal. So mm-hmm. this is one you could easily read in a sitting. It's, you know, it is one of those where it's a little over a hundred pages, but just due to the nature of the second half of this week, I haven't had quite as much time as I'd like to, to read. So I've been reading it in little, little, you know, snippets rather than one big gulp, like I would probably like to do. Um, but yeah, it's really, really good so far. It's, um, about a man named Alyosha who is, you know, he's packed onto this trans-Siberian train with a bunch of other Russian conscripts. And they're kind of hurtling across, you know, Russia, heading towards Siberia, through Siberia. Um, very quickly, he realizes he doesn't want to be there. <laughs> he's trying to figure out a way to desert, but he's already on the train. He's surrounded by, <laughs> you know, officers and other people who, you know, would not be keen on that idea of him making his way off the train. And so he just starts kind of internally plotting, looking for potential people he might be able to either partner with or who should I not let know that this is happening. And like I said, I'm, I'm early on, but it's just really intriguing so far. And I was just going to read, I was going to say one of the things I'm really enjoying so far is just the descriptions of the train ride, but also looking out the window, kind of the natural landscapes around him. Um, and it just says, Alyosha is scared. Siberia. And then I won't say it, but F word. (laughs) This is what he's thinking. Stone in his belly as though seized with panic at the idea of plunging further into what he knows to be a territory of banishment. Giant oubliette of the Tsarist Empire. 
before it turns gulag country. A forbidden perimeter, a silent space, faceless, a black hole. The cadence of the train, monotonous rather than numbing his anxiety, shakes it up and revives it, unspools lines of deportees, pickaxes, pickaxes in hand, stumbling through swirling snowstorms, stirs the frail shacks lined up in the middle of nowhere, hair frozen to wooden floor planks in the night, dead bodies stiff under the permafrost, blurred images of a territory from which no one returns. Like, there's just so many little parts like that where I was like, wow, you know, it's just amazing writing. So you have this internal kind of panic or plotting as he's trying to figure out what to do, but then it's kind of counterpointed with passages like that, that are just absolutely beautiful and haunting. So yeah, like I said, not too far into it, but absolutely loving it so far. Yeah. I thought that one was fantastic. And did you ever read the heart that she no. wrote and published a, it might've been 2016. Cause I feel like I may have read it for the best translated book award. Hmm. I might not have, I can't remember, but sometime, you know, a few years ago and I, I was blown away by it too. I had no yeah. interest in it based on its premise. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it it didn't. It seemed like it could be a completely different, maybe somewhat sappy book. But she has that style that you're talking about. That's very propulsive. Very, yeah. You know, it's like you're falling down the stairs in the plot, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, or, or rather, not the plot necessarily, I guess, but the um the the person's brain that you're inside of. It's like you're falling through it and hitting mm-hmm. your head on various things that are going on. It's pretty pretty strange and and, I, and I, in a good way i really enjoyed both of them absolutely and i don't know if, if this is a fair connection because i haven't read enough yet but like you know in zone by matthias Ennard, how mm-hmm. same thing there's a guy on the train and and you feel like kind of the rhythm of the train and the speed and mm-hmm. some of these other things i mean in zone for sure it plays a key role and even the way the sentences are structured i'm not saying that that's the case here but in some ways i could feel a little bit of that same connection of just somebody their internal dialogue as they're hurtling through space and, and everything at a fast speed. I think there was a little bit of similarity there. Yeah. yeah. Well, good. You should be yeah. able to get through that one um, pretty quickly once you, you know, it, it's a good one to read when you're busy because you'll still feel like you're getting through a book or two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully today and tomorrow I'll, I'll get some time and <laughs> yep. How about uh, you though? What have you been reading? All right. So a couple of, uh, books for read-alongs. I did finish Anthony Trollope's Framley Parsonage this yeah. past week, and I'm still enjoying that. That's book four of the Chronicles of Barsetshire. So the next one for next month will be A Small House in Allington. Okay. That I'm really looking forward to that. I, I'll admit, uh, while a lot of people in the group are loving Framley Parsonage and think it might be their favorite, I'd say of the four I've read, it's in fourth place. Oh, interesting. Not in a bad way, not because I didn't like it. It just didn't didn't quite have the same um, amount of magic that some of the others did for me, but still very good. And it has a lot more to do with some of the old characters. You know, the the Grantleys play a pretty big role in it and the Prouties, but a little bit off to the side. And I, you haven't met the Prouties yet because they come in Barchester Towers. Not it's true. In the I need Warden. to catch up. I'm falling behind. <laughs> well, can I ask you a quick question about that? Uh, yeah. So earlier when you m- mentioned you were going to be doing this, I asked you if you thought that if you had any concerns about the speed of this and kind of the potential assignment feeling of it, have you felt any of that? Or are you still just feeling? Not yet. Good things. Good. Good things. I'm looking, I'm really excited to get back. And, you know, I'll, I'll wait until May to start a small house at Allington, 
but I'm excited about it. Okay, good. This one just it wasn't it wasn't the uh, to read another one. I don't want to. Yeah, I I wasn't quite as connected to some of the main characters, and I have some ideas why. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know it's totally its own little thing, but I still did really enjoy it. It's still Trollop in in ways that I appreciated, but some of those magical passages where you kind of step back with the character mm-hmm. that. I love, I'm always like highlighting all of those in the board and, and at Barchester Towers, even with, even with the, the kind of, you know, in quotes, bad, bad guys, like Do- mm-hmm. Dr. Grantley in the first one, Archdeacon Grantley. I love that part where he steps back and says, I feel like being a little bit too harsh on Dr. <laughs> Grantley in these pages and readers may walk away with a bad impression of him, which may be warranted, but also a little bit incomplete. There's more to him. Yeah. And he, he does that in all of these books. And I, I love that kind of stuff. And I felt like he was a little bit less into that with this one. He, he does a bit of it. There's a there's another kind of villain um, who's kind of a, a I don't know, um, he, he swindles people into signing um, onto debts that he has with him. Mm. And he doesn't really do his part in making sure they are protected. And oh, okay. it ruins people um, for real. And, you know, Trollope does step back a few times to show a little bit more of him, but it's not quite the same because I still don't like him. You know, I could see through the, all the harsh exterior of Archdeacon Grantley mm-hmm. and a little bit tougher to do with some of these characters when I'm like, oh, just don't buy, like they, they should have a little bit of a comeuppance <laughs> right or or at least not make me feel like i shouldn't be judging them for some of these horrible horrible things now it's not like he says you shouldn't be judging them but i don't know it just didn't quite work i didn't care about the the new characters as much as the old characters in this one mm. and so they would pop up you know you get dr thorne mm. in this one you get the greshams that are that are in dr thorne all of those are characters that i came to love in their books and so when they pop up in this one, I'm like, no, let's just, I want to go home with them. I don't, <laughs> right. I don't want to go to Framley Parsonage, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And, but, but still really enjoyable. And there's something about just the blurb of the next one that I'm already like, oh, I'm excited to get to that small nice. house at Allington. <laughs> That's great. You can get to know That's these fun. people. So, um, but the, the book that I started last night that I'm really excited about is, um, I also started one by Archipelago and mm. it is Ida Jessen's A Change of Time. Mm. I have no idea if you say Jessen, 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 I don't know, uh, yeah. because it's translated from the Danish by Martin Aitken. And I I only got to page 15 last night before I you know put it aside, but it it's a book that takes place in, in journal entries. And the very first one is from January 3rd, 1904. And all it says is, I am on my way now. Everything is packed. I haven't the time to write this. I shall continue later. And then the next entry, May 19th, 1905. So over a year later, yesterday I received a visit. And that's it. Wow. Well, then we step into what I feel is going to be the bulk of the book, which is the end of the year in 1927 through 1928, through some time in 1928. And you are meeting a woman who says something about finding a journal. So I, you know, that'll come up, but I don't, I still don't know anything about what's going on there, but her husband is dying 
and he has is a, a town doctor and she was a school teacher and it just feels like I don't know. We're going to learn a lot about how all this goes. And it sounds like a pretty complicated relationship. I don't know, good or bad, and maybe a little bit of both. But there's a part where she goes to visit him. uh, And it says, His face was unaltered since yesterday. The orbs of his eyes covered by the deathly membranes of his eyelids. Always I have wanted to look into his blue eyes. The fire of that urge burns still, though I have long since become an old wife. How I have yearned for its flame to be extinguished, for no embers to remain, nothing that might ever reignite, consigned to the ash pan. Look, I said out loud, look what I've brought for, brought you. I held a hand up in front of his face, trying to fool him. I sat down. A short time later, I said, open your eyes. He didn't. And yet I had the feeling he was awake. Mm. It's just a... Uh, I don't know. I'm excited to get further into it. it. It's written really well. I mean, Martin Aitken's translations are always really nice reads, mm-hmm. but I do want to point out that in the blurb, it says that she, the author, is also the Dutch translator of works by Elizabeth Strout, Marilyn Robinson, and Alice Munro. So yeah, oh, got, wow. got me there. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it's made for you. That's really cool. I have two of her books from Archipelago, that one and a postcard for Annie. Mm-hmm. And I have not read either one yet, but based on what you just told me, that needs to change. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I mean, I, yeah. after 15 pages, I just know you will. Yeah. <laughs> I know Kim McNeil is a, is a big fan of, of hers, if I'm not mistaken. And I know that lots mm-hmm. of other people have, have really enjoyed her work. So yeah, that sounds well, wonderful. Well, and I'm a little bit sad because she does have other books in English, um, including one called The Children that came out um, about 10 years ago now. But to buy it, it's like $30 in paperback because it's from one of those, you know, let's see, maybe the University of Washington. Oh, okay. Anyway, just, which I, you know, they need to be supported too, but it's like oh, $30, $30 for a paperback yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe their rights will lapse, and uh, <laughs> I was going to say maybe Archipelago <laughs> is is eyeing it from afar. <laughs> but all right, well, listeners, thanks for going through that with us. I always enjoy catching up with Paul and sharing yeah. some of these things with you. Uh, we're here to talk about idols in literature, and we. We will share some books about this to try and discuss what we consider and and to explore some of these themes, you know, what is an idol. But I thought, let's start much like we did when we did our epic reads, you know, what is an epic? Mm -hmm. And realizing there's an old school literary definition of an epic. Yeah. And, but we kind of can broaden that and use it a little more generally today, which we do and which we did in that episode. I think it's the same thing with an idol. Yeah. There is a pretty, you know, specific literary tran- or translation, <laughs> literary trait definition, yeah, definition. Trait. Mm-hmm. and it t- kind of talks about a pastoral scene or bucolic. You know, it, it calls to mind a type of paradise that is unblemished by modernity and industrialism. It's like a, a bit of heaven on earth, mm-hmm. and your moments that you can connect in those. So they're often. They're often poems, um, mm-hmm. shorter poems, 
that focus on these pastoral or rural scenes as kind of an idealized, uh, you know, place and time highlighting peace and contentment, maybe the the right way. Yeah. We are quite distant from a lot of that in today's world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even though you and I live out in the West and probably spend a lot, a lot of time out in, in nature. Um, I don't run into a lot of shepherds uh, <laughs> no, unfortunately. And, and, and sheep, even though we do have quite a bit and, you know, the deer walk down our street quite often, but it's, it's still them walking past how homes and vehicles and right. <laughs> all garbage stuff. cans. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so I like the broader definition, which is something along the lines of, and I, I just, if you, if you Google it, this is what you'll come up with an extremely happy, peaceful or picturesque episode or scene, typically an idealized or unsustainable one. Mm-hmm. So it can be an idol that is in the modern world but it's usually relatively brief. Mm-hmm. We may, you know, this is maybe stretching the definition a bit, and I'm just going to put money on the table that Paul is going to even challenge that definition today. <laughs> I might, a little. <laughs> uh, but I really like the idea of these these moments that become very meaningful mm-hmm. and are happy, peaceful. At least they feel like it may be at the time picturesque in some way but unsustainable. Yeah. And I love books and stories that deal with these things that kind of haunt you maybe for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And it did make me think, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. If, if you, as expo- in exploring this, uh, what is the difference between nostalgia and books about nostalgia versus a book about an idol? Mm, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I was, let me think about that because I was kind of jotting down some thoughts and and some of the kind of phrases that came to mind for me were like stolen moments, um, often preceding big changes. Like several mm. of the books I talk about take place right before like one of the world wars, for example. So you can feel this looming and often oh, yeah. it is looked back on from the future. Yeah. Um, or someone kind of stepping outside of their normal worries and concerns of life, you know, just for a brief time to get away from everything. But I did. I said often there's nostalgia or even melancholy that yeah. kind of seeps into a lot of these, um, which is something I absolutely love. So yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think, I think an idol can be, because it's often something you look back on it, it, it can contain within it nostalgia, though yeah. it might be more to it than that. You know, I think of nostalgia as a bit of homesickness, um, mm-hmm. sentimentality, regret and longing, um, and I think you, an idol that you, you look back on that's kind of an idealized time in life, you can feel that nostalgia for it, that, that longing for it, the regret that it's over. Yeah. Um, but nostalgia can also just be more generalized, I think, and talk about a certain age or decade or, you know, the, the way that we, we want to reboot things from the 80s or 90s, you know. Right, right. right. Uh, I don't feel like those were because of an idol necessarily. Um, so I think there's a difference, but I think we're probably, probably most of the stories that I've got are going to deal a little bit with nostalgia as well. Yeah, for me too. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would say is maybe nostalgia sometimes is for like a way of life, or at least it could be, or, you know, like a mm-hmm. bigger, like you said, a decade or a certain yeah. you know time in your life growing up. Whereas these, I think there is the nostalgia mixed in, but it's it's a very brief 
you know, it's, it's almost like that one summer or that one week or that one day that just kind of stands out. And so, yeah, I don't know that it's nostalgia all the time, but yeah, tinged with mm-hmm. regret or just in your later life as you get older and, you know, certain things change, you know, that there's just this moment that you kind of hold up is, is that was one of the, the moments in my life that like I, you use the word haunting. And I think that that's something that I've thought about with pretty much all of the ones that I'm going to talk about today. Okay. Now, as we get into some of our books and, and try to poke around with the barriers and definitions here, I think there are a couple of books that have come up so many times on this podcast that definitely popped first in mind when yeah. I was thinking of this list. And several people, when we kind of asked, hey, what do you think of, wrote these titles in. And so I'm going to leave them off of my list. Okay. And I tried to dig a little deeper, not because yeah. these are wrong. I love these books, but I tried yeah. to dig a little bit deeper. And I think you said you weren't going to include them either. My apologies if you say, if you changed your mind, but you know, the, the one that of course came to mind was JL Carr's A Month in the Country. Mm-hmm. Love that book. Yep. And definitely deals with a summer, you know, a month in the country that was a bit idealized. It was, it was all, all roses, you know, there were some difficulties, but the narrator is looking back on this time. And at the end, he is so sad that that time is gone and that that place exists, but them not in it Yeah, because he's still thinking about that moment. It's like, if you went there, you'd see around every corner, your past self and the people who were there in their past forms as well. Mm-hmm. And so I love a month in the country. I do too. And it has one of the things I was thinking about, or a couple of the things often, a lot of these are based around a place, obviously mm-hmm. a setting, but then not always, but often there is a romantic element, a, yeah. a, you know, a romantic idol. So that yep. definitely ticks both of those boxes. <laughs> and the next one will be the same. Um, I don't think you put on your list, but again, if you did just smack me around a little bit, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll repent. Elizabeth <laughs> von Arnhem's The Enchanted April. No, because I haven't read it yet. Oh, okay. I I keep forgetting that. I, mean. I know. Despite I've I've uh, jumped on board with most of the books that you have raved about, but that's one I still am savoring, waiting for. It's it's April, Paul. But I know Ooh, that's true. I, I know I know it's April. It's April fifteenth as we're recording this. So you do you do you. You know, yeah, if it's not, not this April, then it's another one. And, and that it's not a bad idea, though. Eastbound is pretty short. And so if I finish right. that, I do have a couple weeks left in the <laughs> Well, I won't go into it too much then. Again, I, it was one of my top books that we talked about a couple of years ago on our end of year episode. Uh, or I guess at least I did since you haven't read it. <laughs> yeah, I think it might have been your top book, wasn't it? It might have been. It certainly, it was. It certainly feels like that's right. And just love it again. The Enchanted April, again, as you say, a time. And it doesn't deals with a specific place. It's spring. It's the burgeoning of everything. And there's romantic um, intrigue going on in this book throughout. So those are two books that, again, I think just fit really well. Mm-hmm. That they're not boring. But maybe hearing me yammer on about them again <laughs> might not be as fun as me thinking, okay, what else do I have on the shelf? <laughs> right, right. So, well, hopefully, I won't be yammering on about any that I've talked about before. But yeah, it is, oh, that's it's, not a problem if you are. It's not that yeah. that's a bad thing. I wanted to more challenge myself to I know to think about this a little bit harder and differently. So, I did the same thing because I went through several other options that I was considering, and you know, I can just throw them out there as is ones that I couldn't quite decide if they fit the bill. 
One being Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which I think is closer to the older definition that you talked about, uh-huh. this idealized pastoral scene. And I think Hardy does a lot of playing with that because he will have these scenes with shepherds and, you know, these romantic valleys where the sheep are grazing, but then it's like counterpointed by these really harsh and kind of violent and sad scenes. So I think that one I thought about bringing up just because I think it provides an interesting kind of juxtaposition but I didn't. And then um, the, the mountain lion by uh-huh. um, again, this is risky because hopefully these aren't ones that you picked, um, nope. but that's two, two children who are going to visit this ranch in the Rocky mountains every summer. Again, not completely idealized, but there are moments in that one that I thought were also, you know, worth exploring. So I just wanted to add a couple of little cheats, a little bonus mm-hmm. that I ended up not going in that direction. And really quick, you started to say bye but then I oh. think it, it, oh. that's by Gene Stafford, just for yes. our listeners to... Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And then I'll do one more again, a little bit of a risk. Hopefully this isn't one you're going to talk about, but uh, The Go-Between. Nope, I haven't read that one yet. Yeah. Okay. All, uh, every book that we've been bringing up, by the way, for the most part, is available through NYRB Classics. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it's true. And that one's by L.P. Hartley. That's another one where, again, it's it's at least in the area of this, I think. it's It's this boy who has to go somewhere for a summer... For different reasons, he's having trouble at home. He goes there and he kind of gets caught up in the middle of this um, love affair between these two other people. And he's kind of the messenger between them. But there are some idealized moments of of setting. And it's also the idea of just this break from reality, something very different than what he's used to. So anyway, I'll just throw those three out there as little cheats of, of people who want to either talk about whether or not they fit the bill or if nothing else, they're just great books. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't I start today? Because yeah. I'm I have one more NYRB classic to throw on the list as my as my choice of, of a book about an idol. I might too, actually. <laughs> Just get them out of the way. Yeah. Um, so the one that I that I think about often that I love, and I'm, I don't know if you've read this one. It's uh, Vivant Denon's No Tomorrow. That, oh, it's, it's so fun. It's really short. In fact, I looking looking back on my review, I'm like, I kind of kept on holding off buying this book because it's it's dual language, so it's it's longer. You know, the page count is longer than it might otherwise be, mm-hmm. but the story itself is like 30, 35 pages. Oh wow! So, but it's so worth it. So worth getting it. It's it's translated um, the the NYRB Classics edition translated by Lydia Davis. It's actually a different translation in that book of French um, short stories, the Penguin Book of French short stories, mm-hmm. that I need to read and kind of see how I feel about it. But I love Lydia Davis's translation of No Tomorrow, and I mean, if you go and look at the cover for the NYRB Classics edition, um, it it's just looks like if someone were to say, paint me the picture of an idol, chat yes, GPT, it, <laughs> it would, this is maybe what it would come up with, but it's a French story taking back place, you know, back in the time when, you know, the men had their hair pulled up and a little bit curly on the sides and, mm-hmm. you know, big dresses and these big soirees and a lot of, a lot of stuff going on behind the curtains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this is one where a young man who was in love with someone else uh, goes to this party and has a, an evening with uh, the woman, you know, who who's kind of in charge there. And she is definitely in charge. She she t- takes him and um, gives him an education. 
And But this is how it begins. It says, I was desperately in love with the Comtesse de... And then it, you know, as it does in old stories, has a, an ex, you know, not, no name there. Right. You're supposed to supply your own, I guess. I was 20 years old and I was naive. She deceived me. I got angry. She left me. I was naive. I missed her. I was 20 years old. She forgave me. And because I was 20 years old, because I was naive, still deceived, but no longer abandoned, I thought myself to be the best loved lover and therefore the happiest of men. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, so there's a lot of stuff here about that could be applied here. He's 20 years old. That's a great time for that summer or spring to be something that's formative Mm -hmm. um, and a bit of a, an idealized moment in your life. Um, naive, you know, as he says he is. And here's someone looking back, you know, sometime later to that period of life and remembering this night, this night of no tomorrow, um, because that's the best way to view an idol, right? Is that this isn't actually going to end. We have landed here in this dream and we, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to end, but it's unsustainable. It is going to end. Yeah. And, you know, it's about so much more than this, but again, it's just a fun, quick, um, story about this young man uh, meeting up with this woman and and you know they they, they start to kiss and I, I like this part it says kisses are like confidences they attract each other they accelerate each other they excite each other in fact I had barely received the first kiss when a second followed upon its heels and then another their pace quickened interrupting and then replacing the conversation soon they scarcely left us time to sigh silence fell all around us. We heard it, for one sometimes hears silence, and we were frightened. We stood up without saying a word and began to walk again. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Very good story. Um, Hard to not, you know, a lot. The thing that I've also realized is so many of these stories that I have, the 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 essence of an idol is in the title. (laughs) No tomorrow by Vivant Dinon. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's sounds really good. You talked about the essence being in the title. How about this for my first book? It's one we've talked about before. The Fortnight in September Ooh. by R.C. Sheriff. Haven't read it's right it yet, there. but keep uh, on wanting to. So good. Um, I think we originally brought it up, or it was actually brought up by Jackie Wine when she joined us for our hotel episode. Um, and I think we've even talked about it maybe briefly once or twice in other episodes. But this is just an absolutely wonderful book. And to me, it's kind of the epitome of an idol. Um it's about the Stevens. They're this kind of lower middle class family who live in London. And every year they take this two week holiday trip to the coastal town of Bogner Regis. And that's where Mr. and Mrs. Stevens first stayed on their honeymoon in a guest house called the Sea View. And so every year they return to that. Um, and they, you know, as their life has changed, now they have three children. There's Ernie, who's, you know, an elementary school boy. I don't know. He's probably like six or seven. Then there's uh, Dick, who's an older son. He's like 16 or 17. And then 20-year-old Mary, who's their daughter. And both Dick and Mary are growing up. You know, they're starting to have jobs and love interests and things. So they're starting to pull away from the family, as you would expect. And so that's one of the really interesting things about this is this has all of the history of them coming there ever since their honeymoon with small children. You know, that, that one of those places that you return to every year, and it's this escape in this peaceful place. But right now this, you know, potentially could be the last time that they're all together there or one of the last times. And so it has this really interesting tension between 
nostalgia and the past and all these memories, but also looming in the background is the fact that this is kind of coming to a close, this chapter of their life. So I think because of all those complications, it's just a wonderful blend of both the hope and the optimism of a holiday as you're planning it and getting ready and everybody's excited. But it also has that melancholy that we talked about with the passage of time and how things are starting to change. So one of my favorite passages is Mr. Stevens. And it's, I think it's like the night before they leave and he's, he's, you know, getting ready to go. And it's a wonderful little insight into who he is as a person. Um, And it says, Mr. Stevens was not an unduly sentimental man, no more so probably than the average. It was only that by instinct, he had taught himself to relieve the drabness of his days by painting red letters to all that could possibly bear the title. It was entirely by instinct that he did this, entirely subconsciously, for he would have been the last to regard his life as drab. It would be more just, perhaps, to say that he had the gift of establishing domestic occasions, which do so much to strengthen the links of a home. New Year's Eve, Going Away Eve, had titles of a delicate, meditative red, the former because of its wistful plea to strengthen fading hopes, the latter because it heralded the yearly release of emotions which Mr. Stevens neither wished nor sought to analyze and understand. And this is a part I really like. The man on his holidays becomes the man he might have been, the man he could have been, had things worked out a little differently. All men are equal on their holidays. All are free to dream their castles without thought of expense or skill of architect. Dreams based upon such delicate fabric must be nursed with reverence and held away from the crude light of tomorrow week. And I just really like that idea of like, you know, that I think that ties into the idol of like, this is a moment where you can kind of be your idealized self, who you really should be if it wasn't for all these other obligations and work responsibilities and all these other things. So it has some wonderful passages like that about the anticipation side of things. But there's also this um, really nice passage that's more about the melancholy. Um, This is when the first night they're there, but he's doing that thing that you do during these moments sometimes where you're already realizing that it's started and that means it's going to end and you're trying not to think about the fact you only have a week left or whatever. So it says, But he knew that time only moved evenly upon the hands of clocks. To men it can linger and almost stop dead, race on, leap chasms, and linger again. He knew, with a little sadness, that it always made up its distance in the end. Today it had traveled gropingly, like an engine in a fog, but now, with each passing hour of the holiday, it would gather speed, and the days would flash by, like little wayside stations. And I just thought, oh, so good. It's just that wonderful tension of like you just started the holiday you're right in the middle of it you have all this excitement you're unpacking the suitcases but already in the back of your mind you know you're already thinking about how short it's going to be so yeah it's just a great book it it at different points you jump into the different minds of the different people and, and you actually see the different perspectives that they have on the holiday but like i said looming behind all of it is the mixture of memory but also like the acknowledgement that this is kind of all coming to a close it's just a beautiful sad but also sweet book i really liked it a lot well for my number four i'll follow that up because it's it's true these these idols you know or these holidays and and moments where you're like i'm i'm stepping away from real life for a little bit they can haunt you you know kind of with that oh beautiful time i don't mean like with regret necessarily but just haunt you because it's past but the 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 idol itself, while you're within it, can be haunted by its own end. Mm-hmm. You know, that that sense of, oh, time needs to actually stop here for a little while, as you're saying um, with uh, Fortnite in September. And so I'll pull up one of mine that is uh, goes kind of similar. 
And I've talked about this before, but I don't remember exactly how much or when it was, but Stephen Milhauser's short story, Getting Closer, mm-hmm. about a young boy, you know, I, it says exactly what his age is, but I didn't go back and reread it. It's, you know, he's young, he's 10 or 11. Um, he's on holiday for a day with his family and he gets to go and sit on, you know, uh, go, go float down the, the river, the lazy river on a raft and just enjoy this moment. He's been looking forward to this for a long time, but this poor child can't seem to enjoy it because the end is getting closer as he gets, as he gets closer to its very beginning. And there's a part that he's, he's sitting here and he goes, if he goes into the river, he'll lose the excitement, the feeling that everything that matters because he's getting closer and closer to the moment he's been waiting for. When you have that feeling, everything's full of life, every leaf, every pebble. But when you begin, you're using things up. The day starts slipping away behind you. He wants to stay on this side of things to hold it right here. A nervousness comes over him, a chilliness in the sun. In a moment, the day will begin to end. Things will rush away behind him. The day he's been waiting for is practically over. He sees it now. He sees it. Ending is everywhere. It's right there in the beginning. They don't tell you about it. It's hidden away in things. Under the shining skin of the world, everything's dead and gone. Mm-hmm. Whoa. And that adds a level of depth to these idols to me where the, I feel like the way that they haunt us is because of what Milhauser is talking about here. We realize that not only is that time over, but we're all, you know, that this time we have (laughs) on earth is not going to last forever. The time we have as children is going to be over the time that we have People in our homes who are our children is coming to an end. Sorry, Paul. I know you're closer than I am, uh, but not by far. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned that because today is my older son's 18th birthday. So we are definitely having those feelings of like, yeah, it's happening. So no, absolutely. I, I think you're exactly right. And I am curious to hear your thoughts on, I think there would still be a lot of power if this was only focusing on the beauty and the moments, the, the, Mm -hmm. the positives. But to me, the big one of the big allures of it is that tension because I think that's mm-hmm. what makes it interesting. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of examples of stories that I love that are just the fun and just you know the the vacation or whatever without that. But I yeah. do think maybe every single one of the stories that I talk about here has a strong element of that the passage of the, time and, and of the loss. loss. Mm-hmm. Well, Vivant Denons might be the outlier for me. Because no tomorrow is is really so much more fun than it is yeah. regretful, yeah. Um, and I feel like he's able to continue, even though he's moved on in life. He's able to continue to look back on this evening as a source of restoration, mm. as a source of of joy and pride and and all that. But the rest of mine definitely have that sense that something something was lost um, for various reasons, for sure. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think Milhauser just nails it on the head. I oh. I love this story. Getting, Remind getting closer. me which, do you know which collection that's in? I think you told me before, but I don't know if you know off the top of your head. I'm not sure if it was in We Others. Okay. Um, but it is. it was published in The New Yorker in 2010, 2011. I'll okay. find that out and I'll put that, when I put in the show notes, Steve Milhauser's Getting Closer, I'll also put uh, what collection it's in okay. within that, I, that line. 
I need to read that one. That sounds absolutely wonderful. It's very short too. Yeah. <laughs> Fitting, fittingly. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of short stories, I actually, my second choice is another short story. It's Brokeback Mountain by Annie Prue, which appears in the collection Close Range Wyoming Stories. So to me, this is, you know, just the epitome of a romantic idol, you know, one of those brief but really powerful times in people's lives that kind of haunt them for the rest of their lives. So, you know, a lot of people probably know this one either from the story or from the the wonderful Ang Lee movie, but it's set in 1963 and it tells the story of Ennis and Jack. And it's these two guys who are hired for a summer to kind of tend flocks of sheep. So there's your shepherds in the mountains of, of Wyoming. Um, and during their time on the mountain over that summer, they have an affair before they then have to return to their kind of quote unquote normal lives. And what I found so powerful about this book is kind of Annie Prue is so understated in the way that she presents things through dialogue and in her descriptions where it's very matter of fact about their relationship and both the power and the beauty of it and the violence even sometimes, but she makes it clear through their dialogue and their actions and also the perspectives of others that are in the story that at this time and in this place, this is also a very illicit thing that is not necessarily, you know, looked on kindly by society. But despite all that, you know, she has just these beautiful moments, you know, that they're up on the, up on the mountain. And, and at first they're just kind of coworkers, but then they start to form these relationship, this relationship is they're sitting around the fire and drinking and having dinner and singing songs and stuff. And there's just a, um, a, a nice passage here. It says the summer went on and they moved the herd to new pasture shifted the camp. The distance between the sheep and the new camp was greater and the night ride longer. Ennis rode easy, sleeping with his eyes open, but the hours he was away from the sheep stretched out and out. Jack pulled a squalling burr out of the harmonica, flattened a little from a fall off the skittish bay mare, and Ennis had a good raspy voice. A few nights they mangled their way through some songs. Ennis knew the salty words to Strawberry Roan. Jack tried a Carl Perkins song, bawling, What I Say, Yay, Yay, but he favored a sad hymn water-walking Jesus, learned from his mother, who believed in the Pentecost, that he sang at dirge slowness, setting off distant coyote yips. And I just, you know, there's so many nice passages like that where, you know, of course, with the movie and everything, it was all about, you know, the, the sex and, and all that side of it. But this is just such a beautiful, you know, the beginnings of a rela- relationship where they're both trying to figure out these complicated feelings that they're having, but it's got a sweetness to it too, hmm. mixed with everything else that I really, really like. So the idyllic part of the story right there, that's really only a few pages long, but then we follow their relationships through the following years and decades where they go back and they marry women, have families, go about their lives. And so over the next 20 years, we kind of watch their separate lives play out with marriages and children and jobs and all that. But they do, I mean, this is not too much of a spoiler. They do reunite for these brief liaisons throughout their lives, you know, camping trips and a lot of remote settings and things like that. So I don't know. I just thought this was such a good one because not only that summer, but also that chance they got to truly be themselves. And and there's definitely a lot going on um, where they, they have to move on and, mm-hmm. and become who they quote unquote are supposed to be, but it never really changes what happened that summer and, and the impacts it had on them. So I don't know. I, I love it so much. There's just one more quick um, near the end. It says later that dozy embrace solidified in his memory as the single moment of artless charmed happiness in their separate and difficult lives. Nothing marred it. Even the knowledge that Ennis would not then embrace him face to face because he did not want to see nor feel that it was Jack he held. And maybe he thought 
they never got much farther than that. Let be, let be. And I just, oh, so that story just gets me every single time. And Annie Prue is so good. She's just so unsentimental, but yet she still gets you every time. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, I love that story. And I thought that was a really good example. Yeah, that's an excellent example. And you're right. If you only know it through the uh, Ang Lee film, which is a beautiful film. Oh, I love that film. I do too. You're, in many ways, I feel like you're missing out on what Prue is actually doing with that story. They, they took yeah. it different directions. Yeah. Um, and both in good directions. And I love I love them both. But you're too. right. That I think the, the story is a lot more about, probably a lot more adjacent to an idol than the movie could mm-hmm. be. Yeah, so. I agree. All right. Well, you, you just did a short story. Well, I, I realize four of mine are short. You know, Vivant Denon's No Tomorrow comes in a longer book. But as I said, the story itself occupies only a few dozen pages. Um, so I have four basically short stories. So two more of those. And the, okay. the next one I'll talk about is Guy de Maupassant's A Day in the Country. So again, let's go with this this very on the nose title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the edition that I read is from Oxford world's classics, a day in the country and other stories translated by David Coward. Uh, but the reason I know this story at all, I don't, I never came upon it in, in, you know, classes or anything like that. I didn't stumble on it on my own, but it's through Jean Renoir's wonderful film, a day in the country. I just love this film from the thirties. Uh, love it. And so I w- wanted to read the the story as well, and they're very similar, but also there's there's kind of a a bit of a difference in that Jean Renoir never got to film the very 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 end coda, which I think mm-hmm. was in the works for most of it, and so the film was kind of viewed as unfinished. But then there's actually a plate at the beginning of it saying, eh, "A storm interrupted our work, but the film you see here is complete." And I think what they're saying is, you know, this is we don't need that coda to still have a very powerful ending and powerful things. And I I agree, but the coda is a part that I think really talks about some of this regret and longing for a time that uh, is past and how much of an effect some of these very brief moments can have on somebody. Uh, This is a story about a family from the city. The dad is, is an iron, you know, magnet. He he's got money they go out to the country to, to spend a day out by the river and kind of loll about and picnic. And there are some uh, men out there in the country who uh, there are two of them. And they're like, Oh, look at this family that, that's come to town, which is a mom, a dad and their, their daughter who's 18 or 20 is what the story says. And the two men say, why don't you guys come out on, you know, we'll take you out on the, the river. And the dad's, you know, half, lazing about and taking a nap doesn't want to go but the daughter and the mom go and well things happen um for both of them but particularly for the daughter that's who we're following and it's a brief moment with someone that she doesn't even really know but there's something to it um that makes this so memorable and shocking to her it's never entirely clear if it's good or bad but it is something that stays with her so much that uh, a little bit later, um, she, uh, the, the, the man who is with her, you know, the, the oarsman, the guy who takes them out on the river, um, he goes to that spot quite frequently. 
uh, after afterwards. And once he gets there, and there she is. It says, just as he was beginning to tell her how much he loved the place and how often he came there on a Sunday to get away and think back on t- to times gone by, she looked long and hard into his eyes. I think about it every night, she said. Come on, ducks, said her husband with a yawn. Time we was making tracks. And we knew before this that she'd gotten married in the interim. Uh, but how much that says about this particular time and what she felt there versus what she's feeling, you know, in her current life um, in the city. This one might be my most pastoral of all of them, where you can kind of get away from all of that and this sense of duty and, you know, our roles and uh, maybe escape that. So from that perspective, it can be a fairly positive thing. But there's there's also parts where you're like, just you just don't know. It's complicated. Yeah. It's complicated in the film version as well. Um, but I, I do love this story because of how much you're like, I can't nail it down entirely. Why does she want to go back there? It's It was a day in the country with someone she doesn't know, never met again, really, you know, in, in many ways. And yet, what does that represent for her? Hmm. Maybe passion, but not necessarily. I don't think with that person, you know, something else, something about possibilities in her life that she's lost at this point, you know, that, that childhood is, is over and done. And, and she'll always, I think, look back on that moment as a moment of somewhat freedom, but again, more complicated than that. I I love when that moment ends. This is, this is going now stepping back into the story a little bit further. They were both very pale as they left their bed of greenery. The blue sky seemed to them to have grown dimmer. They did not feel the glare of the burning sun. They were aware of solitude and silence. They walked quickly, side by side, not speaking, not touching, for they seemed to have turned into irreconcilable enemies, as though a sense of loathing had come between their bodies and hatred separated their minds. He just, you know, Guy de Maupassant just puts these complicating factors where someone else writing this might want to idealize every aspect of it. He's not. He's making sure it's known that this was probably traumatic as well. And maybe that's a reason she thinks about it a lot and soberly looks the man into the eyes and says, I think about it every night. It's not pure longing. There's something else. But this this moment, and I do I do look at it as it can be the other as well, a very positive idol, you know, that that's why she goes back. But I, again, a very, a, much, a more complicated look, I think, at, at an idol than... than Maybe you expect when you you sit down with this little French story again, yeah. kind of like Vivant de Nons, about a little little bit of a, a fleeing, um, but the very powerful. Yeah, you're introducing me to some ones that I am aware of, but I've never read, so I'm going to have to <laughs> mark these and, and get to them. That sounds absolutely wonderful. What you said about oh, go ahead. Have, have you ever seen the film? No. I wonder if it's on the Criterion channel. It's a Criterion release. Okay, I'll have to if go it, check that out. If it's on the Criterion channel, yeah, you've, you've, you've got to, Paul. You've yeah. got to. You mentioned a word that I almost said it right before you did, possibilities. I think that is mm. a really important word in, in many of these stories. Like you said, it's not always the regret of the specific thing that happened, but it's the closing of potential paths mm. or or freedoms or however you want to look at it. But it's the idea that time kind of closes doors or narrows passages or takes you in certain directions that I think is really intriguing about a lot of these. It's like some alternate reality. You get to continue living the life you started in that idol. Mm -hmm. 
but in the yeah. one you're in, it, it was unsustainable and it's over and you can see that, you know, and that, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds really good. Well, my third book is another holiday book. Um, but I will say that I think it has a lot of similarities with what you just described, where there's a surface that you see, but there's also a lot of complications going on and it's to the lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Um, I think it's complicated because on the surface, it is very idyllic in many ways. You know, you see this family, they are staying at this summer home. They have, you know, their friends and and different people are coming out to visit them and they're having all these dinner parties and they're painting out on the lawn and everything. But due to, you know, Virginia Woolf's masterful way of, of getting us into people's heads, we are exposed also to the turmoil and the truths that are kind of bubbling under the surface. So I thought it was a really interesting combination of these idyllic surfaces, but the realities that are kind of, you know, going on beneath the surface. So I mentioned earlier that there were several of these books that took place right before big moments in history. And this one is set just before World War I. Um, so yeah, it focuses on the Ramsey family, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey and their eight children. And they're spending time at their summer home in the Hebrides. Um, and like I said, there's lots of holiday moments. Is you know, it, again in the title, they're planning this trip to the lighthouse, which in particular their youngest son is really, really looking forward to. They're hosting all these guests and having these big elaborate dinner parties. So you get the food and the conversations and all the different games that spring up when you're on vacation and things. So there's that idyllic side of things. But again, there's also the other stuff that's going on. So the passage that I was going to mention was you know, they're all gathered around the dinner table and Mrs. Ramsey is kind of sitting there and it's candle lit and she can see everybody's faces. And she's having this moment where she's looking at this really elaborate dessert that's been put out. And she's talking about the dessert here. And she says, thus brought up suddenly into the light, it seemed possessed of great size and depth was like a world in which one could take one staff and climb hills, she thought, and go down into valleys and to her pleasure, for it brought them into sympathy momentarily. She saw that Augustus too, her husband, feasted his eyes on the same plate of fruit, plunged in, broke off a bloom there, a tassel here, and returned after feasting to his hive. That was his way of looking different from hers, but looking together united them. Now all the candles were lit up, and the faces on both sides of the tables were brought nearer by the candlelight and composed, as they had not been in the twilight, into a party round a table, for the night was now shut off by panes of glass, which far from giving any accurate view of the outside world, rippled it so strangely that here inside the room seemed to be order and dry land. There outside, a reflection in which things wavered and vanished, waterily. And I just think that's so beautiful. It's this moment of, there's a lot of that going on in this book where there's this moment where they're kind of inside this little cocoon, but like she says, the outside is still there. But for (laughs) this one brief moment, due to the candlelight and the, the way the glass is reflecting, it's like this little safe cocoon that is, you know, giving her these feelings where she's kind of her and her husband don't always get along, but in that moment, they're both looking at the dessert and they have this common moment where they share something. So I think that that is really fascinating. But then a little bit later after this scene, it says she's getting up to leave the room and it says with her foot on the threshold, she waited a moment longer in a scene, which was vanishing, even as she looked. And then as she moved and took Minta's arm and left the room, it changed. It shaped itself differently. It had become, she knew, giving one last look at it over her shoulder, already the past. And I was like, oh man, that just gets you. It's it's tying into what we were already talking about, but just that idea of 
in the moment you have these little magical times but even as you leave that room that will never happen again and so you know the first this book is divided into three sections the first section is all about that party and and everything that's going on but you know i think i won't give away too much but anybody who's read this book knows that the second passage so the first passage or the first section takes place all in one day and it's a big chunk of the book the second section is like hitting the fast forward button and you watch time just fly by i remember the first time i read that i was just absolutely (laughs) stunned it was one of the most amazing literary things i think i'd ever seen and it does really put a fine point on the fact that that time in this first section was a very brief time counterpointed by these decades flying by. And then the third section, certain members of this party come back and everything has changed. And, and they're looking back on that first time, you know, and just thinking about everything, how time has, has wrecked and changed everything. So I think that book, you know, like you said, is very complicated, but it, it includes both the idol and, and the aftermath. Yeah. I love that's I think my favorite Virginia Woolf book. Yeah. Uh and it's so it's so good for those yeah. very reasons or, or why I'm really attracted to it. It makes you feel like you're there with them and kind of enjoying the the moment but also the all the complicated feelings and resentments and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> things Do you going feel on. like it it was the one where I was I thought it still would apply as an idol. Oh yeah, but I, I'm curious to get your. Do you think it? I think fits absolutely, well? especially. So I, I even as you were saying that, I thought oh, I, I think Jacob's room would mm. also probably apply at, at least as it as it contains these moments within the text. But mm-hmm. I think I think that uh, to the lighthouse is even more than Jacob's room. Jacob's room is really about a life, and it begins out on the beach and in this moment that could be an idol that's passing away, and you. you there's a moment of fear, like where's Jacob? And you realize that in that moment, you can kind of see that the, the mom is trying to picture a world without Jacob mm-hmm. uh, because he's just, you know, he's around the corner. You don't, don't see him in that fear in those moments, but the book goes and explores a lot more and a lot more about Jacob through other people. And then, you know, ends in his room with him absent. Um, won't get, go into all the spoilers and stuff, but right. I think it's very much uh, a little bit about that. Maybe maybe putting a whole life as the idol mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. while exploring it. But I think to the lighthouse even more so. Just yeah. just fantastic. I know. <laughs> well, and many of the books that that we've we've talked about are ones that uh, I think take place in summer or warmer months. But I've got two to end on that. Are colder. Uh, okay. the, the first one is William Trevor's An Idol in Winter. <laughs> mm. It's a short story published in The Guardian. Um, and it begins in a, with a summer idol. It really does. There's a, a young girl. She's 12. It's summertime. And she is, when it starts, waiting for her tutor to arrive. She doesn't know who he is, but she's kind of excited about it. And, you know, here comes the 22-year-old tutor. Well, nothing really happens. Like the book, the story is not going in that direction, but of course the young girl develops kind of a crush and loves this time because her whole world is opened up. You know, she's learning about literature. They live on the moor. She's learning about passion and, and idols. You know, she's reading some of these, these poems and such. And this is the, the person who brings that to her. And he kind of recognizes even then that like, huh, this girl is getting a little bit attached. And so he, you know, moves on and tries to forget it. 
it's it's years later that he goes back you know he's a map maker he's married he has kids and he goes back to this town because his job takes him there and runs into her again and as you might expect you know eventually they kind of start their own affair to where and this is where i think is where i want to go with this one in terms of exploring an idol he connects that first period of their life together when they were both younger to the affair that they have years later. And that kind of forms a life where his time as a married man with those kids that he loves and, and William Trevor is very clear, clear about this. He doesn't like being away from home. Mm. He, he wants to always be back home, but that becomes a separate life, a separate on a separate plane, almost, you know, like that almost becomes the idol, the unreal thing. And, mm -hmm. and he's with Mary Bella is the young girl who's older, you know, when they do get together, um, they, they have this, this time together in the winter, but we get, a, we, we know from the title that this is not going to last. It's unsustainable and it shouldn't. Um, but where do you go from there? I won't spoil it. Cause I don't think you've read this one. Mm -mm. Um, but he, he does a really good job of exploring these planes of um, of time, as always. You know, I feel like so many of his, of his stories kind of are like time packed on itself. It's like he could see in, you know, however many dimensions that might be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, for, for William Trevor, all things are present. Um, <laughs> but he, he sees in this particular case the effects that these moments have had on all of the people involved. And just... A, a lovely story, a sad one, as is often the case with, with mm -hmm. William Trevor, but so well done, so interesting. And, and you know, he calls it an idol in winter, so I had to put it on the list, whether it applies or not. I was going <laughs> to say, he, got it. He, he gave you the trail of breadcrumbs right to that one. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Every time you talk about William Trevor, I wonder why I'm not always reading William Trevor. I know. I feel <laughs> the same way. Like, why, why did I not read one yesterday? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's great. Well, my next one is actually an essay. Um, it's called Down the River, and it's from Edward Abbey's wonderful collection, Desert Solitaire. Hmm. I've talked about this book before, and I think probably even this essay. It's one of my all-time favorites. Um, it's about Edward Abbey and a friend of his, and they're taking this final boat trip through Glen Canyon right before it's going to be dammed and flooded to create a reservoir. And so this is a really interesting, it, to my, my point of view, it's a really interesting look at the idea of an idol where it's not only nostalgia for a time, but this place is literally going to disappear. So we spend time with them as they're traveling down this river and camp, and they're just soaking in all of these places and sites that will soon be, you know, literally underwater and never, you know, be able to be seen again. Um, so to me, it, it epitomizes both the extremely happy and peaceful and idyllic thing. They're, they're boating down the river. They're camping by the side of the river and listening to the water. They're eating, you know, refried beans and, drinking whiskey or whatever, and, and just chatting and laughing and telling jokes. But throughout the whole thing, there's this very much that unsustainable aspect that we talked about. So I'll, I'll just read a couple of, of quick passages here. It says, the time passes very slowly, but not slowly enough. The Canyon world becomes each hour more beautiful, the closer we come to its end. We think we have forgotten, but we cannot forget. The knowledge is lodged like strontium in the marrow of our bones that Glen Canyon has been condemned. We refuse to think about it. We dare not think about it. For if we did, we'd be eating our hearts, chewing our entrails, consuming ourselves in the fury of helpless rage, of helpless outrage. And I thought that was just like, you're just railing and, and you're so angry and, and 
upset, but there's, there's just the inevitability of, of something that you can't change. And then just one more real quick one. It says, the sun is gleaming on the pool, on the foam, on the transparent waterfall. I dive in, swim under the fall, and take a soapless shower, lie on the rock in a patch of sunshine, and gaze up at the small, irregular fragment of blue which forms the sky in this place. Then I return through the tunnel to camp and companion. Has this particular canyon been seen and named by earlier river runners? No doubt it has, but I find no evidence to dispel the illusion that I may be the first to ever have entered here, and probably the last. And so I don't know that that story or that essay to me is just amazing. It's it's got beautiful nature writing. It has a lot of the um, elegiac quality of a lot of nature writing in our current environment, where due to you know climate change and the fact that you know dams are being built and things are being paved over, you know it has that idea of of kind of nature as idle, and and the idea that a lot of these things that we're seeing are literally disappearing right before our eyes. Um, and in this particular case, very literally, you know, within, I don't know if it's weeks or months, this is all going to be gone. So they're looking at this. They may be the last people to ever look at some of these things. So, but again, it does have still that kind of, there are, there are moments of pure joy and, and beauty and the simple pleasures of life of just sitting around a camp with a friend and, and talking and everything. Um, but with, with all of that looming over it, it's just, to me, I thought it was a perfect example. Ooh, nice. Yeah. I haven't read that one still. I have the book. I've had it yeah. for some time, oh, but I love it so much. And another <laughs> one with somebody floating down a river. See where there you go. Connections. <laughs> That's right. How many? You know, it's funny with their epic reads. Like every book has Napoleon in it if it's epic. <laughs> right. Apparently, in this one, everyone has floating down the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, not my next one. My next okay. one, maybe I go out of bounds on. You, okay. you, you be That's the right. judge. You you okay. can push back. Um, it doesn't take place in spring or summer or even fall, you know, these wistful times of year. It takes place on the last daylight hour of a December afternoon more than 20 years ago. Mm. <laughs> I was 23, writing and publishing my first short stories, and like many a Bildungsroman hero before me, already contemplating my own massive Bildungsroman when I arrived at his hideaway to meet the great man. This is Philip Roth's The Ghost Rider. Oh, yes. I thought it sounded familiar. <laughs> it's hard to... There's so much that goes on in this story that it might not naturally become an idol. So this is this is me making my final argument for you know, <laughs> okay. a different definition, or at least this, this, this fits in the definition. Um, again, it's the last daylight hour of December. He's spending a, a night. This is uh, Nathan Zuckerman, you know, the protagonist of many of Roth's... Um, novels, kind of an alter ego. And he's going to meet an author that he worships, go to the hideaway of this author up in Massachusetts. And it's the home of E.I. Lanoff, who, you know, I think many people have said that's Roth's stand in for Bernard Malamud, Mm. uh, his kind of heroic uh, living author that he went to visit when he was young and spend this night with and thinking about, oh, here I am about to become, you know, in the inner sanctum of the great author. Well, how can I, how can I leech off of this and, and, you know, start, keep this going in my career. This is a big moment for me. And it just doesn't go the way that he thinks it's going to go in, in, in the weirdest ways. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole part of this that is about alternate histories and alternate um, worlds and exploitation of characters and people in real life as you're writing 
And I'll let readers who haven't read it discover that on their own because it's important to the book. And it's, it's one of the reasons it's so fascinating to me is what Roth through Nathan Zuckerman is doing here and talking about the Jewish identity and this desire to be a great author and, and to snag things from your real world. But I think this book also explores how sometimes you go into these moments that you, you've already idealized even before you get there. I get to spend, a, a, you know, me, this young writer who's barely put out anything, gets to spend some time with this great writer. And it's worse than you could imagine. And it almost, it almost makes you regret that you did it because it, it shatters that illusion. And so I think this is a book that shows that an idol can be shattered at the end. Uh, not just through its ending, but because you realize everything that you'd put into it, it was actually unsustainable because it was never going to be those things. He sees too much reality in this in this life. Um, he sees that E.I. Lanoff, as, as he puts in at one point, he says, uh, little children don't realize that underneath a big blowhard who rolls on the floor and makes them laugh, there can be somebody who makes other people cry. And this is a really painful, painful book, especially the way that Roth writes the ending, which I talked about a little bit ago on a, on another episode when Hope, uh, Lenoff's wife, who's almost more like a maid, you know, she's, it's a really horrible um, relationship. Um, but at the same time, she, she has a higher calling to serve this great, this great man. It's almost like Kazupan and Dorothea in mm-hmm. Middlemarch. Um, but it's so sad. And the way that Roth writes her ending as she's walking down the road at the end in the winter with boots that are barely on and clomping. And, um, when she turned into the road, she immediately passed out of sight. But then of course she wasn't very big to begin with. And it's like, this is a moment for this young author to think, is this who I want to be? Am I really going to just, you know, in order to become the great author, become kind of a monster at the same time and this ruining this idol of I can just go here and write and observe but to realize the the lives that can be affected by it I'm not saying all that's actually fully in the book or Roth's entire point I think it's in there and I think Roth is is chasing that but also many other things because Roth was willing to complicate things by his own failings and by his own problems and his own uh, shortcomings. Um, you know, he explored those in these books and I think he's definitely doing that here. Uh, we know that he didn't necessarily have always the best relationships and, um, didn't always treat women, um, the, the right way or anything like that. Uh, but here is a story where he's in, in some ways confronting a moment where he could have maybe realized that, mm-hmm. uh, because this, this, this perfect life of I get to go and be a reclusive author is kind of shattered by the reality of these are humans. They're hurting each other. And yeah, no, I, you sold me. I I absolutely think that I I like what you said. The idol that is created is in his own mind before he ever gets there. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I think that that's another, you know, you know me, I always like the complicated I think if any of these became too simple, it could get predictable and mm-hmm. kind of boring. So I, I think that, and it's kind of interesting in this case, I think two, two versions of idol I D O L, you know, that's being yeah. created and shattered alongside the other one. So I think that's kind of interesting too, where 
like you said, so much of it was him building it up in his mind, both what this retreat or this conversation would be like, but also the person that he thinks that that guy is. And then both of them come down in ruins. <laughs> oh, I like uh, how you tied it to the other idol. Thanks. Yeah. Paul. Oh, sure, way, sure. way to do that. <laughs> well, my last one, I think I, kn- I know that you'll be able to talk about this one. And I was kind of afraid we might both do it, but um, it's, I think this is a very straightforward one, a time of gifts by Patrick Lee Fermer. Um, I think this is, I thought about it, <laughs> the epitome of an idol. Um, you know, everybody probably knows by now, but the, at the age of 18, Patrick Lee Fermer, he kind of set out from London on this epic walk, this big journey to walk to Constantinople. And this is the first book in, in the series that kind of follows him along that path. And so, you know, we talked earlier about the looming war that plays a huge role in this and, and is part of what makes it so idealistic. Um, the fact that he is walking across Europe a few years, I mean, it's already starting to change, but a few years before massive changes are going to take place. And so this is written in the forward. He is looking back on this time. You know, he rediscovers these letters and journals and it's got that interesting looking back at it from, you know, the other side of the war. So he realizes just how much everything was about to change as he looks back on it. But at the time he is just idealistic, excited, you know, rearing to go. So this is very near the beginning, but I just love this passage. It says, this is when he just sets off. My spirits already high steadily rose as I walked. I could scarcely believe that I was really there alone. That is on the move advancing into Europe, surrounded by all this emptiness and change with a thousand wonders waiting. Because of this, perhaps, the actual doings of the next few days emerged from the general glow in a disjointed and haphazard way. I halted at a signpost to eat a hunk of bread and a yellow wedge of cheese, cheese sliced from a red cannon, ball by a village grocer. One arm of the signpost pointed to Amsterdam and Utrecht, the other to Dortrecht, Breda, and Antwerp, and I obeyed the latter. The way followed a river with too swift a current for ice to form, and brambles and hazel and rushes grew thick along the banks. Leaning over a bridge, I watched a string of barges gliding downstream underneath me in the wake of a stertorous tug bound for Rotterdam, and a little later an island, as slender as a weaver's shuttle, divided the current midstream. A floating red fringe spinney, it looked like a small castle with a steeply pitched shingle roof and turrets with conical tops emerged romantically from the mesh of the branches. Belfries of a dizzy height were scattered haphazard across the landscape. They were visible for a long way, and in the late afternoon, I singled one of them out for a landmark and a goal and he just sets off for it. And, uh, just so Mm -hmm. I love that book so much. Um, I love again, the nature writing, but also, like I said, there's just this looming, like as he's going along, he's drinking beer in German beer halls and, you know, they're all having fun and they're getting drunk and they're dancing on the tables and whatever, singing songs. And then, you know, some Nazi soldiers kind of come in and, and, it just kind of puts this shadow because things are starting to change and and they don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you can just kind of feel it in the air that this is that moment before the storm hits. Um, so, you know, I know you love this book and I could go on and on forever, but I, I couldn't not put it on this list because mm-hmm. I feel like it's just maybe the, the best example of all of mine of, of that moment of, of just youth and pleasure and adventure and excitement but looked back on with this lens of, of kind of 
you know, years later, you realize just how special it was. Yeah, he's so good. In fact, it's it's interesting because it's almost like he never actually did stop in le- leading that kind of life. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He, he all of his books through all of his time periods, like, and this is when I went and lived in a in a monastery for a few <laughs> weeks. This is when I was, uh, you know, doing covert um, operations in the war, you know, in Greece and on these islands. And, you know, he seemed to have quite the life, but yeah, I, I love that book. And um, it, it brings to mind that a lot of times these books or reading these books, they can become idols in your own life. Oh, you know, absolutely. this, this moment of, of, of it's unsustainable. The book's going to come to an end, but it, it can be, amazing it can be meaningful and you can look back on them forever as kind of a a, a special moment but a, a formative moment and i definitely look at this one as that i adored my time with this book um i think back still to the evening when my brother and i sat down to record that podcast episode that we did on it mm-hmm. um which was now over a decade ago that was in 2012 i believe and we talked in that that evening we talked about all the evenings when we used to go and visit our grandma who lived a block away when we were kids and listened to her tell us stories. Mm-hmm. And it, it was brought up because there are moments in, in a time of gifts where he's sitting, listening to some of these older people um, telling him stories. And he's so tired that he kind of drifts off, but he, he regrets it because he would have loved to have been able to sit there and listen to their stories about their lives forever. Mm. And I remember Brian and I talking about that and thinking, yeah, I'd love to go and be able to sit down with grandma again mm-hmm. and just, just be there. Yeah. And weirdly that conversation is another one of those moments for me that I just really value that time that we had together um, recording about this book and my time reading the book. It's kind of cool that, that um, you, you've brought it up before, maybe not in these terms, but sometimes reading these books creates their own time. You know, it's busy. Life is busy. You carve it out and it can, it can become it separate. It can become separate, not tainted by the busyness that we're worried about. You know, if we sit down, try and steal a few moments of the day to read and we're always like, Oh, it's no, no point. Well, they kind of coalesce and become their own moment of time. If you can create them and, 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 and do that. And it, it's, it's awesome. I love it. Oh, that's an amazing connection. I love that. That is an absolutely perfect place to end. I love that idea of of not only are we reading about idols, but it is creating an idol for us in that moment. I love that. Yeah. All right, Paul. Well, thanks for joining me today again. I yeah. this is the reason why I wanted to do this topic is it's spring. You yes. know, it's it's that time of year that can be busy, but also you can go out and smell the flowers and I mm. I'm looking forward to it and looking forward to our next few episodes as, as, as they're coming up. I just, I love, I love going outside to be able to read maybe if, if there's mm. a few warm sun rays coming down. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the snowflakes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, so. I, we have our, our hammock is ready and waiting. I've mentioned it many times. <laughs> That's one of my favorite places to read as we get into spring and summer and I'm, we're not quite there, but we're getting close. So I can't wait. Nice, nice. Yeah, as always, thank you for the wonderful conversation. I love how these topics during our conversations go in so many directions that I never would have expected. It's one of my favorite things about doing this. So yeah, I love you. it too. Yeah, Listeners, if you have any thoughts on, on any of this, please share them with us. We'd love to hear them and look forward to, you know, many, many more. Uh, Absolutely. Have a good one. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.